Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I'm thrilled to have with me today, I think for the first time, definitely for the first time in fact, an otolaryngologist, Dr. Alexander, goes by Zandi Hillel. Dr. Hillel is the uh, is an associate professor of otolaryngology, actually with a joint uh, appointment in anesthesiology. He's also the residency director for the otolaryngology residency program here at Johns Hopkins, and he joins us today to talk about uh, anesthesia and surgery around tracheostomies, as well as a couple other interesting things that we'll get the ENT perspective on from him. Zandi, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jed. And I want to point out that this episode is going to be featured on anesthesiologynews.com. Listeners will know they feature our episodes from time to time. So check it out over there. Let us know if you see it, anesthesiologynews.com. They've got a lot of other great stuff you can check out while you're over there. All right, let's jump in. Zandi, I want to start very basically and ask you, uh, we'll talk about tracheostomies. And let me just ask you, what is that? When we say a tracheostomy, let's just go to the basics in case anybody doesn't know, what is a tracheostomy? Sure thing, Jed. Uh, a tracheostomy is an airway prosthesis um, that goes in through the neck into the trachea below the vocal cords. Um, and um, I, that's, that's the simple, there, there are a lot of reasons for it, but that's the simple explanation of what it is. Great. And how does that differ from a cricothyrotomy? So a cricothyrotomy is, uh, we use the same equipment. Um, it's also done through the neck, but the cricothyrotomy is, I would say 99% of the time done as an emergency procedure as part of the difficult airway algorithm when uh, bag masking fails, the ability to intubate fails. And the cricothyrotomy uh, is unique in that the uh, the incision and the tube is going through the cricothyroid space, which is the uh, a, a space that on most patients is very palpable, and you can access it quickly in an emergency setting. And what is it about that that makes it um, uh, a not an ideal choice for a non-emergency setting? In other words, why don't we just do cricothyrotomies on everybody? Why why did patients get tracheostomies instead? Yeah, the the big reason for this is its proximity to the vocal cords. And depending on the individual patient's anatomy, the tracheostomy tube uh, could, the, the, or the cricothyrotomy tube, if it stays in that position, can actually cause injury to the vocal folds. So we therefore like to have these more semi-permanent or sometimes even permanent tracheostomies further away from the vocal folds so as to um, limit potential injury to them and allow the patient to use their vocal folds to phonate or to speak to generate voice um, uh, later on in their care. Great. All right. So the tracheostomy is done inferior to the cricothyroid ligament and it's done uh, at any certain level. Is it always tracheal ring number two or? Yeah, I I think that as we, we, as a general rule, we like to stay at least one ring away from the cricoid. Um, you know, I think you'll hear some people say they like to be between rings two and three. Um, uh, but I think anywhere between one and two, two and three, some people probably even go to between three and four. Great. All right. And what are different ways to do this? I personally have participated and a lot of our anesthesia colleagues out there will have participated in percutaneous tracheostomies. I'm sure there's also open tracheostomies. Are yep. there other, or are those the two main main techniques? Those are the two main techniques. There's probably some hybrid versions uh, of that, although they would still be a percutaneous tracheostomy just done in the operating room, you know, using that technique. Right. And is there, when would you use one versus the other? Well, so as an otolaryngologist, I'm primarily called in for the open tracheostomies, although a number of my colleagues do perform percutaneous tracheostomies as part of the percutaneous tracheostomy team here at the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think probably the better way to think about it is percutaneous tracheostomies have, have gained a lot of favor because they are less expensive. They don't require transport of what are oftentimes critically ill patients. And um, they can avoid the difficulty of uh, obtaining uh, op- OR time, yep. which is usually in high demand. 
Um, and, um, and then, therefore, patients can be treated sooner uh, so that the tracheostomy can be placed sooner through a percutaneous um, technique. Great. Now, when we think about an emergency cricothyrotomy, that is almost always a patient who is close to dying. That's why they're getting it. They can't get an airway. And so they're unlikely to be fully awake. But, they, but awake tracheostomies are done. Yeah. You want to say a word about that? When, when would you do an awake tracheostomy? So awake tracheostomies are um, generally done in the case of an obstruction of the airway, usually at the level of the vocal folds. Uh, squamous cell carcinoma of the larynx is probably the most common cause. In certain cases, some people who have bad um, intubation trauma to their vocal folds where the vocal cords don't open, posterior glottic stenosis or laryngeal stenosis may also benefit from an awake tracheostomy simply because the, 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 the managing team, the anesthesia team, and usually the otolaryngology team don't feel like you can safely place an endotracheal tube through the vocal folds or through the obstruction um, of the vocal folds. Right. And so it's, we think, therefore, it's not safe to put them to sleep. Therefore, you do it away. Right. And I guess the third, the third um, uh, time that I would think about it would be in a trauma to the laryngeal cartilages, penetrating trauma, such as a gunshot wound. Okay. Now, uh, when you th- we think about from, from our end, from the anesthesia side, what do you need? What role do we play when we're working with you on, let's start with a percutaneous uh, tracheostomy? So I guess in a percutaneous uh, tracheostomy situation, we're working um, we're working very closely. Yeah. Um, there's obviously the sedation um, component that anesthesia is managing. In addition, um, in ma- in many situations, uh, most percutaneous percutaneous tracheostomy is felt to be more safely performed with uh, bronchoscopy mm-hmm. to verify position. Um, and that is, in most cases, performed by the anesthesiologist. So it's really a dual role where anesthesia is in addition to providing the sedation um, and the, the general anesthesia, uh, they are also having an assistant uh, surgical role as well. Great. So we're going in with the bronch uh, through uh, presumably what is already an endotracheal tube An endotracheal in tube, yep. Looking for your needle coming into the uh, trachea, showing you that so you know where you are. Right. Um, and then kind of working closely to slowly withdraw the tube while you're coming in with your um, new uh, tracheostomy tube. Um, is there, uh, when we think about uh, paralysis, is that something that you like that for those percutaneous tracheostomies? Do you, in general, do you think surgeons want to have those patients relaxed? Does it depend? Is it a very individual decision? Does it matter? Yeah, I would probably um, – I, I don't know that it's necessary. Um, in uh, certain cases, I generally like paralysis if the vocal folds might be involved. So I think it depends on how um, awake the patient is mm-hmm. and how active they are. But I think it would probably be a um, surgeon preference. Okay. And if you're doing it awake, is it done under just local? Do you just infiltrate lidocaine in the area? Generally, yeah. I mean, if you feel, you know, what you're what you're also relying on is, well, what happens if something untoward or unexpected happens? And so sometimes anesthesia might be there providing some high flow oxygen or even some um, some supportive breathing. In, in that situation. It's kind of an all-hands-on-deck. It is done uh, quite quickly but under control. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, different from a cricothyrotomy, um, which is really just about getting in as quickly as you can. Yeah. Um, so in, in, in that situation, an- anesthesia is, uh, you know, I think in all three of these situations, right, it really is a, a team effort with close communication. Yeah. But an awake tracheostomy is, is one where you sort of have to anticipate both both physicians, both teams need to anticipate that something unexpected could happen and need to work in concert if that is the case. Yeah, great. Now, there's some uh, folks out there who are uh, in anesthesia but are going to be at times, or there may be folks in emergency medicine who will be at times performing a cricothyrotomy in an emergency situation. When I was a resident, I was taught uh, to do a essentially a um, Seldinger technique. Um, with a needle, then a wire, then a, uh, you know, there's kits that, that are, do this. 
Um, there's some uh, certainly been some um, some papers recently in the past few years in, in the emergency medicine literature that uh, kind of advocate for not doing it that way for doing um, I think what they refer to as a finger bougie technique so or finger scalpel bougie um, when you do it uh, how do you uh, are you all using some sort of kit that is a, a with a, a needle and a wire and a dilator or how are you doing your percutaneous tricks oh percutaneous tricks yes yeah, percutaneous okay. tricks so yeah usually or, or I guess I should say crikes. If oh, crikes. Crike. Well, so I, to me, a crike is uh, truly an emergency. Um, you know, it, it is it is a, a, a true emergency. You probably have, um, you know, some small number of minutes or less than a minute to get an airway in. Right. Um, and it is um, – I don't rely on a kit. I would uh, ask for a knife or hopefully we've anticipated that this – you know that our airway management uh, may end up at the last step in the difficult airway algorithm, right. and I would we would have a knife available. Hopefully, you may have even injected some um, topical lidocaine or some sorry some uh, local uh, lidocaine with epinephrine to limit any bleeding. Yep. And then it's a quick palpate for the cricoid, almost a puncture technique or a quick slash with a scalpel with a scalpel to try and immediately get into the airway. Okay. Um, you're relying on all of your senses. I mean, there, there was a, a case that I had where I, I made a big vertical incision and, um, it was the air whoosh that we heard in a patient who was obstructed that, um, gave us the, uh, positive feedback that we had gotten into the airway. Yeah. And then it was a matter of just placing a tube through there. So, okay. You know, we, we talk about technique, and I think technique is important. It's more important in the surgical decision-making. Um, and I think that's what's so hard when you have um, physicians who aren't, aren't usually operating with a scalpel. Right. Um, one, there's the recognition of, of how quickly do you need to, to act. I mean, I remember we were in the, um, we were in the uh, interventional radiology suite, and I took a look at the anesthesiologist who was there. Thankfully, we had our difficult airway cart. We took one look at each other, and we were like, we can't bag mass this patient. We yeah. need to move to a surgical airway. And that was very helpful because it was, you know, both of the physicians sort of realized that and worked in concert. So, but sometimes, um, you know, it's, it's not, uh, it doesn't always go as expected. And really the, the bottom line is you have to get into the airway in a fashion to then uh, ventilate the patient. Right. So often you're going to go for speed over, uh, you know, kind of any kind of exact technique. You right. just want to get in there with the knife. Do you do vertical versus horizontal? Yeah, I think that probably is worth discussing. Um, the, the benefit of a vertical incision through the neck is you're going to generally avoid any uh, medium or large size vessels. If you make a horizontal incision, I've seen some where the great vessels have been entered. Yep. And then now you have a secondary problem, right? You have a big bleeding problem, which is presumably a second concern, but it's, it's – um, it's obviously interfering with your primary concern, which is getting into the trachea. So I, I would generally, in an emergency setting, um, uh, promote a, a vertical, a quick vertical incision. Um, I think if you can palpate the, the landmarks, that's very helpful, and yep. use your thumb to guide you, um, and then get whatever tube you have. It might be a tracheostomy. It oftentimes might be an endotracheal tube. Yeah. Okay. So you want to get something in there and start ventilating. Right. And is there, are there, you know, just very kind of basic common uh, mistakes or best practices that you would recommend above beyond that? Yeah, I, I think it's it, one, the, 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 the big uh, teaching point, I think, is keeping your cool and knowing that time will slow down in that situation, uh, move very quickly, but uh, move um, safely and um, and you probably have a little bit more time than you, you think you do. Yeah. Uh, so keep keep your senses. Keep in mind that you're also now managing the patient. You're managing the team who's also managing the patient. And um, I think that's pretty critical. If you have an assistant who can retract, making sure that you have some retractor available mm -hmm. or, or calling out for it. Uh, but I think, you know, just like in a code situation, right, which we've all been to, those uh, physicians that are running the code calmly always seems to go better 
yep. and have better outcomes. And I think it's no different in a, an airway code requiring a cricothyrotomy. Absolutely. Great. All right. Now, let's go back to uh, – we talked about kind of the anesthesia input and, and um, role in the percutaneous tracheostomy. What if it's open in the OR? I mean, obviously, the patient is going to be asleep, and as we always do with managing patients in the OR, we will keep them safe, comfortable, and asleep. Is there anything specific to open tracheostomies that you want, you think anesthesia providers should keep in mind? Yeah, I mean, I'll step back, too, because if you think about how frequently now tracheostomies are done with a percutaneous technique, it probably is those patients that had a contraindication. Mm-hmm for the percutaneous technique. Maybe they cannot extend their neck. Maybe they're morbidly obese or have a ton of uh, soft tissue in their neck. Right. And so, um, or maybe they have a coagulopathy and they have to get the, the, the trach in. Um, and so they're generally higher risk patients, um, uh, not as anatomically favorable. Yep. Um, and so the, the communication does need to be very very close um, with both the surgeon and the anesthesiologist. Um, uh, one of the things, especially once you get down to the trach, um, keeping in mind to deflate the cuff um, because if you, if you make your incision through the trachea, you ideally don't want to cuff up. Right. Um, and, and then you puncture the cuff and now you might have ventilatory right. uh, concerns. So um, that's critical. Backing up the tube. I mean, same thing in the percutane with the percutaneous technique. Backing up the tube so you safely don't lose the airway, right. just in case something unexpected happens with with placing the tracheostomy. Right. Great. All right. Those are great tips. So, what do you think about common complications that one might see after a trach? You know, where we may be now in the ICU or in the PACU, depending on where people go in, in given hospitals. Um, with a patient who's had a tracheostomy, what should we be looking for in terms of complications? Yeah, so I think there's probably um, the way to think about complications from a tracheostomy is um, early and late are, are probably the, the how you would categorize them. An early complication um, oftentimes may be related to the technique. You may see bleeding uh, either from... Um, a clipping of a vessel, you know, percutaneous or or open technique. Um, a lot of times, you might even have mucosal bleeding that just uh, starts to occur, um, and then you enter into the issues with air tracking into compartments of the body that maybe it shouldn't. Subcutaneous emphysema, air that is under the skin. Um, you can have pneumomediastinum, which would be air in the mediastinum, and uh, then you know pneumothorax, which is really air around the lung but compressing on the lung. Mm-hmm. And so those are the um, the the critical early um, complications. I think early or late, there can always be a blockage of the trach, and that's important to um, consider. It's, um, it's also the, the reason for the need for regular suction of uh, tracheostomies that have just been, been performed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the other surgical complications of could you be injuring adjacent um, organs such as the esophagus, such as um, the great vessels. Yep. Um, and then are there uh, those are all things that could happen early or the, early and late. And then when you think about later, and when you say late, we're talking about days down the road? or Well, I think, yeah, probably more like days to weeks okay. down the road. Um, um, one would be the trait coming out, right? Decannulation or accidental decannulation. Um, I think this is a question that's um, that that comes up a lot. If it if it happens immediately, that is a um, a, a significant emergency because the tract that was created uh, or, or is not going to remain opened if that trach comes out, and that's the reason why we secure the trach with a tight tie around the neck, and then usually with sutures through the flange or faceplate. Um, and then those other complications that may take days to weeks, infection, mm-hmm. tracheitis. You might get granulation tissue from the, the tracheostomy tube rubbing. Uh, sometimes that can be un- right under the faceplate mm-hmm. uh, around the neck, or you can oftentimes see granulation tissue in the trachea. Okay. Um, and then the windpipe itself could become injured. Maybe the cuff was overinflated and uh, causes some injury to the the um, the cartilage, you mm-hmm. know, which then develops into tracheomalacia. There might be injury, and a lot of times we see it above where the tracheostomy sits, a, um, a deformity 
causing tracheal stenosis okay. from from the tracheostomy. And now we're really entering the the late late or delayed complications. Um, and then uh, connections, right? Tracheoesophageal fistula, connection between the trachea and the esophagus, thankfully very rare. Tracheoanominate fistula, right? The big vessel that's, that's bringing blood from um, the aorta and cro- crosses right over the front of the trachea. And in very rare cases, if there's too much pressure, uh, especially in someone who's had radiation and which is, has deleterious effects on the tissue, there can be a connection between the trachea and that vessel. Um, and that's usually life-threatening. Yeah. Um, um, and then I think we talked about stenosis as yep. well. Great. All right. Now, let's say, because I think the one that uh, of those later complications, or I guess it could be early or late, but that, that potentially we would need to act on sooner rather than later would be the uh, tube coming out, right? I mean, that could be an emergency if the patient can't ventilate without it in. So obviously, if you can get the surgeon who just put the thing in, great, right? But if this is the middle of the night and you're the ICU resident or or attending or the ER doc or whatever you are, wherever you are, um, and a new trach comes out, what do you do if you don't have the surgeon right there to deal with it themselves? Yeah, so then I think you have to think about what was the reason for the trach going in in the first place. Hopefully it wasn't, this wasn't an awake trach done because of a bad obstruction at the level of the vocal cords. And what I would recommend in that situation is treat it like somebody who's got respiratory failure. Um, You would want to bag mask them and then hopefully establish an airway from above. Um, if there is still a small connection with air leaking out of the neck uh, after the tube has come out, you probably want to cover that to allow for mm-hmm. a closed circuit with the nose and the mouth. Yep. Um, and in most situations, that can be um, that is that is the uh, most efficient and easiest way to to manage that. Yeah. Now, obviously, in the setting of a total laryngectomy, that's a different issue where there is no uh, uh, there is no access from above. Right. And right. in that case, you're just you got to try to put it back in the way the the trach. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And total laryngectomy is now we're moving we're moving outside of that. You know, this is different because now you've truly disconnected the the respiratory tract right. from the the throat from right. the pharynx, and there is no connection to the nose or the mouth. Right. There is only a connection out the neck. Right. And then, yes, then it must be – that's the only way to get the airway at that point. And are there any – you know, so let's take either that scenario or it could be that the patient had, you know, a, a, something compressing the upper airway. That's why they got the trach. It's still there maybe. So uh, if you feel like you can't – or let's say you try from above and you can't and you do can't, it. Yeah. Um, are there techniques? Uh, would you try a bougie? Would you – you know, how, how do you recommend people go for trying to get that trach back in the neck? Yeah, um, you know, in, in some situations, you may be able to have a scope that can guide you there, or you're going to have to sort of rely on, um, you know, your landmarks that you can palpate to get back in, because mm-hmm. uh, you're going to need to get back in quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, you can try a fiber optic bronchoscope if you have one. You could try a bougie and feel for those tracheal rings if you have. You try your finger. You can try your finger, or you're now moving into the cricothyrotomy uh, um, you know, protocol. Right. So you could still do a crank, which would be above that, that area. Okay, great. Let's talk briefly about cuffs. So you have a new trach. It's going to have a cuff, right? You would always have a cuffed trach at yep. first for a variety of reasons. I imagine that helps if there is bleeding, it's going to help keep it out of the lungs. Right. Um, at what point do you take a patient? Uh, we talk a lot in the ICU. Some folks may not be aware of this about, uh, downsizing, um, and or going to a cuffless trach. When does that happen? Well, so I think it, it depends. I mean, if, if we think about why most tracheostomies occur, and uh, obviously coming from coming from the otolaryngology perspective, we are probably in the minority, right? We're doing it because for airway protection because of a big head and neck cancer uh, excision, um, or we're doing it because of some bad tracheal or laryngeal stenosis. But the majority of these cases are um, chronic respiratory or respiratory failure. Yeah. And so the, the real benefit of the, the trach is it's removing dead space. It hopefully allows the patient to more easily wean from the ventilator. Yep. And assuming they don't need um, pressure support or ventilatory support, from our perspective, we would want to get that cuff down as soon as possible. Right. Because it can cause complications by itself, like you said, trachea malaysia, et cetera. Right. 
Right. Okay. Um, and now with these lower pressure cuffs, just like on an uh, endotracheal tube, we don't see that as much, but it, it certainly does, sure. does occur. Um, and the other benefit now is once you've deflated the cuff or gotten a cuffless trach in, um, we, uh, you can allow the, the patient can phonate because usually air can flow around the outside of the trachea tube within the trachea yep. and go up through the vocal cords. Now, sometimes that has to require a downsizing uh, in does. order for there to be right. – right. So right. how far out – let's say a patient is – they're fine. They're breathing not on the vent. They're just on yep. the trach collar. They're not requiring support from a ventilator. Um, how far out from the initial surgery would you downsize a trach? Yeah, I think I think it's it's somewhat surgeon dependent. Um, you know, I think it's probably a tract. You want to make sure the tract has formed or mostly formed. Some people are, um, you know, I, I generally have a rule of about five days. Okay, I think probably the range of three to seven days is, you know, would be a somewhat normal range. I know that um, my general surgery, our general surgery colleagues will oftentimes just like to leave that trach in uh, for a lot longer period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, we're considering, can we get them to phone a, can we get them to communicate? So usually I would say about five days plus or minus a day. Okay. And then we think of it downsizing as same size tube, but without a cuff. Uh, yep. Because there's now less space on the outside of the tracheostomy tube, but within the trachea. Right. Or um, you can then go to a smaller tracheostomy, um, especially if you're now thinking about, uh, will this patient be able to, will we be able to decannulate the patient, remove the tracheostomy, and let them go back to breathing through their nose and mouth. Right. Okay. So... Um, is there, you're going to wait, you said, depending on the surgeon, anywhere three to seven or, or more days, um, to change it when you, when it's changed that first time, let's say for you five days out, do you, or your, do you want you or your team to do that? Or are you comfortable with, uh, others, maybe a respiratory therapist doing it? How, what's the protocol? Uh, the protocol in this hospital is that our team performs the first, um, trach change. Okay. Um, and we do it in about five to seven days. Okay. Uh, after that, assuming it's not an upsizing, then respiratory therapy can do it. Okay. Personally, my, my personal feeling on this is that if somebody is experienced and somebody knows how to get themselves out of trouble, they are capable of doing a trach change. Yep. Okay, great. So um, another thing, uh, we sometimes have patients who get a cricothyrotomy and, uh, emergently, and now they are in the ICU. Should that patient be changed to a tracheostomy if they're going to need, I mean, if it can come out the next day, probably doesn't right, matter, right. but let's say they're going to need ongoing support. Should we keep the crike or should we revise it for a trach? Well, I think, you know, I think the, there, there's a study, I, I think it came out in 2010 looking at, you know, the, the concept with a crike is that the longer the tube is in through the cricothyroid membrane, that it will um, put the patient at higher risk for uh, stenosis. Mm-hmm. And in this study, they did not find high rates of stenosis. I'm not sh- and, and then they therefore concluded there is not a rush to convert from a cricothyrotomy to a tracheostomy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, would, I would beg to differ. I have uh, the, some of the bad, the worst cases of laryngeal stenosis I've seen have been from crikes that have either not been recognized because they're done emergently or um, are just left in too long. Mm-hmm. So personally, my, my personal feeling on this, and I think most otolaryngologists um, hew to this belief of if, if the the tube is going to likely be in for three days or longer, we would say convert to a tracheostomy. Okay. You know, I mean, can you go to five days a week? Probably, but that would be the general tenet that I would promote. Okay. So it is, uh, if it's going to be, you know, the next day, it can come out, no no problem. Right. Speaking of coming out, so a patient has a trach um, and they're doing fine. There's kind of two two paths, right? One is they may not need it at all. Like you said, they may be ready to breathe through their nose and mouth, in which case, is there any um, – do you just take it out and it heals on its own? Do you need to actually apply any kind of patch to the neck? How, how does that heal up? So there's a capping protocol, and um, which would be the best way to test can the patient – um, breathe comfortably without a trach, where mm-hmm. we basically will cap the trach. It's usually the smallest size trach that mm-hmm. we can find most frequently a four. And um, that will be put in. The patient will be capped. Our protocol within the hospital is to uh, cap them for the day, um, uncap for the first night, and then the next day move to continuous capping. If they can make it for 24 hours in a row, we feel quite comfortable 
that um, the tracheostomy tube can be removed safely. And there's some uh, there's a good study. Uh, Vincia Pandian um, is the first author on that that um, shows the benefits of a capping protocol and predicting who can safely be decannulated. Um, once they are, once you've decided to decannulate and remove the the trach, there is still that hole in the neck. Yeah. And um, without uh, pressure over the hole when talking or coughing, air is going to continue to leak out or come out. And so what we'll do is we'll we'll create a little sort of gauze patch that's obviously bigger than the hole. Yeah. And um, uh, secure it with tape and instruct the patient to put pressure over that when talking or coughing. And usually in a matter of three days, maybe seven or eight days, that has has completely healed. Great. All right. Now, let's say a patient is going to need uh, long-term, I mean, the most obvious example would be someone who had a total laryngectomy. Uh, at some point, they no longer need to have a, a cannula in there, right? They will just be able to have a, a stoma in the neck. So in a total laryngectomy, yes, you can have a stoma. And the reason for that is because in a total laryngectomy, you really are suturing the tracheal rings to the skin of the neck. So there isn't going to be collapse of the the respiratory tract, the new respiratory tract. A tracheostomy is a little bit different because you need to... You need to create a surgical tunnel or hole down to the tra- from the skin down into the trachea. And without a tube, that soft tissue and skin will want to close, okay. sort of like a, a, a peg tube might. And so that's the reason that tracheostomies in general are um, – tracheostomy tubes are left in. Um, in those patients who maybe need it at night or, or need it for a long term for whatever reason. All right, so let's talk about different types of trachs. I mean, we hear a lot of a 60 Shiley or a you mentioned a 4. Are there is this are they just different make different brands or are there different styles and how do you know who needs what? Yeah, there are different brands and different styles. Um and, and they all have slight uh differences. I think if you if you were to break it down, the concept of a trach is to have the largest inner diameter um, with the smallest outer diameter because that outer diameter is what's taking up space in the trach. It's what's going through the neck. And it's the inner diameter that you're truly breathing through. So a narrow a narrow inner diameter, it's like you're breathing through a straw. Um, the other key parts to the um, trach is the cuff. Uh, as we talked about, because um, especially in patients who may need to inflate the cuff at night because they're on a ventilator, mm-hmm. um, some people will use foam cuffs, which are generally thought to be a little bit um, more delicate to the adjacent tissue. Um, and then the, the, the third key part um, is the faceplate or flange. Many companies have now gone towards more of a softer plastic. Mm -hmm. So it will create less irritation to the skin, less erosion or ulceration of the Mm -hmm. skin around there. Um, And then there's the the key concept of an inner cannula, which is really the the whole premise behind a trach, right? Is it's a safe airway for, because there's the inner cannula that if that becomes obstructed, if the tube becomes obstructed, you can quickly remove the inner cannula and you now still have a tube that's going into the neck. Right. So they can breathe. And so that inner cannula and its relation to the outer cannula are, pr- are pretty critical. And that's where you'll see some of the differences. Okay. A Bavona trach is a very flexible trach. Um, it doesn't have an inner cannula. So the, the danger with the Bavona trach, you can adjust its position. As I said, it's very flexible and it will, will bend accordingly. But if there are secretions that build up, you, your only choice is to remove the whole trach in an emergency. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the most common company um, is probably Shiley. And what's nice about their trachs is they have um, an inner cannula that's very tight in the outer cannula. Um, so you, ha- you sort of will help achieve that, that ratio mm-hmm. or, or that relationship is probably a better term of, of larger inner cannula diameter to, sh- to, to smallest outer cannula diameter. Right. And then there's the Portex trach. Um, also a very good trach with a very uh, soft face plate. But um, there, they, their 
their technology doesn't seem to have as much. It's not as tight, the inner cannula okay. going in. Um, and then I would probably be a little remiss uh, if I didn't mention Jackson metal trachs, which seem to be pretty rare or rare, more, you know, I, they're, they're a lot less frequently used these days um, because they're, they're really permanent and you can take them out, you can clean them and put them back in. But um, in general, I think as most medical devices have moved, or I shouldn't say medical devices, most prostheses have been moved to more disposable. Mm -hmm. It's just it, they, they have sort of fallen out of favor. What's nice about the metal trach is you can they they can be made very thinly, yeah, and then they're also low profile in the neck. Yep. Okay. Well, that's great. Now these patients uh, here certainly, I think the protocol is they they always go either to an ICU or to some some particular kind of step down beds. Uh, one obvious reason it would be just if it falls out, you want to be in a, an acuity of level where that yeah. would be noticed quickly. Are there other reasons why these patients need to be monitored closely? I, I think the most important is probably just the uh, intensity of the nursing care in those first 24 hours. And is that around suctioning? Suctioning, right. And that's the big thing. You know, I, I think our post-op trach orders require suctioning every hour. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a PRN, right. so if they don't need it, we don't do it. But some patients need suctioning every hour, and that's just not something that a floor nurse can really manage. And why is that? Why is there so such a high suctioning need postoperatively? Well, I think you've made a, you've now made a connection from the outside to the inside. Um, our, the, the, the tissues are apt to um, secrete, you know, serous fluid. Mm -hmm. In addition, you have cold air, um, right? The air is not going through your nose and mouth, which both heat and humidify the air. Yep. And through the, 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 the trach tube, even with a ventilator, the air is not as warm or as uh, well humidified. And so that creates irritation of the, the um, tracheal skin and creates more secretions. And then over time, they adjust and it no longer... Right. Okay. Right. So, great. great most, most, most patients adjust. Yes. Yeah. All right. So great discussion of tracheal surgery. Let's talk about um, laryngeal surgery, which I think is actually more of your personal practice. Um, so this is now where you're operating on or very near the vocal cords themselves. Yeah. Often this means you can't have an endotracheal tube in place, not always, but often for dirt while you are actually operating. So how does that work? How, do, how are we able to oxygenate and ventilate a patient when we can't have an endotracheal tube in yeah, and so, um, you know, I think in most vocal cord or vocal fold procedures, there's probably enough space, thankfully, because the lesions of the vocal fold are so small. Um, but in, in my, I have a large surgical practice in stenosis or fibrosis of the larynx mm -hmm. or the trachea. Yeah. And there, in that situation, we are literally operating on the area that, that usually the breathing tube sits in. Yeah. So there's a few different ways to um, manage that. One is to share time between what uh, the patient needs from an, anesthesia's from an anesthesia perspective and what the patient needs from a surgeon's perspective. And so you can remove the tube and have some short period to operate, intermittent apnea or intermittent ventilation. Yep. Um, and then the tube goes back in. Um, there's also jet ventilation, which are very small. They're usually about four millimeter uh, outer diameter tubes that can be placed. And as long as they don't take up space for the surgeon to operate through, you can, in most situations, ventilate uh, the entire case. And then um, it's not really interfering in the surgical field. Yep. So that's another option. Um, one that uh, I've, I've learned from an anesthesiologist actually at Bayview Hospital is um, something called high-flow oxygen uh, or apneic oxygenation. And I think that's, that's gotten – that's had something of a renaissance recently. You see it more certainly in the ICUs mm -hmm. which the high, with the high-flow nasal cannula or yep. Thrive. Yep. Um, but in the OR, I will sometimes, if I'm operating on the trachea and it's for a short case of about 30 minutes or less, I will just push high flow oxygen through a nasal trumpet, um, in the nasal cavity. And it's usually about 15, 12 to 15 liters per minute, um, of a hundred percent oxygen and patients get enough gas exchange. Certainly the, the CO2 builds up during the course of the the surgery, but in patients who are not obese, don't have a lot of chest mass yep. and really have healthy lungs, they weren't smokers, they can get by for 30 or 40 minutes and maintain their oxygen levels, yeah. which in most cases is enough time for us to do what we need to do on the larynx or the trachea. Right. And certainly even if it's not that long, you can buy yourself more time than you would have had with total exactly. apnea. Exactly. Right. 
Now, uh, is the um, you, it, basically what you're doing is hooking up your you're putting in a nasal trumpet. You're hooking up your um, tubing through essentially an endotracheal tube connector. Adapter, right. Yep, and then right. hooking that directly to the nasal cannula. Yep. And then giving them high flow oxygen. Now, is there any concern about airway fires pumping 100% oxygen in there or not? Well, I think, yes, certainly. And I think anytime I'm using a laser in one of my cases, we are dialing down the um, FiO2 to about 30%. Yeah. Um, the, the benefit of this technique in really lowering the risk of airway fires is there's no fuel, there's no endotracheal tube that can catch on fire and stay on fire after the initial spark. Right. Um, so, um, it, it, it's still pretty low risk, but if you're using a laser and you're you have you're pushing 100% oxygen through the area that you're using the laser, you will oftentimes see these small little flares, which are best to avoid. Yeah. Uh, to to really eliminate the risk of airway fires, which nobody likes. Absolutely. All right. And then uh, let's. Are there other things if, for anesthesiologists who are involved in these, or maybe a resident who's doing one the next day? Are there things you would recommend they keep in mind that make these surgeries go more smoothly in addition to what we just talked about with ventilating and oxygenating the patient? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a different uh, perspective. It's a different uh, relationship when you're the anesthesiologist working with sort of an airway surgeon or a laryngologist, right? I mean, first off, we are operating where you're used to having the patient's head. And, And right then and there, it is, you know, we're stepping on your turf. You know, the surgeon probably feels vice versa. And, and I think what it what, – um, and then the other aspect to it is um, how closely you need to be communicating, especially if you're using one of these alternative or alternate ventilatory techniques. Yeah. You need to be in close communication if you're jet ventilating because what if um, peak pressures are increasing, right? Um, then you're at a little bit of a higher risk for a pneumothorax. What if um, saturations are dropping? So there's really very close um, – you're, you're really working together in, in the same area. You know, anesthesia is allowing me to operate in, in your, sort of your realm. And, um, and then uh, the, the, the surgeon in those cases is also pretty critical to how do you ventilate the patient safely. Yeah. Um, I had one interesting case in a patient that I was operating on. Um, you know, I, I operate on this patient every three or four months. And so I, I, I know her lung physiology and she's somebody that we usually perform high flow oxygen on. Um, and, uh, she, uh, actually we could never get her stats up above 95. Um, and, um, it was an odd situation where it was myself and the anesthesiologist were, were discussing this. Mm-hmm. I noticed that this is not our usual uh, respiratory physiology. And he started looking through her, um, her medication list um, because what was running through his mind was, well, maybe she's got methemoglobinemia. And sure enough, she was recently put on Dapsone. Ah. So I think it was a good situation. You know, I can't think of the last time an otolaryngologist helped to diagnose somebody with methemoglobinemia. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. But I think it's, you know, we're, we're stressing the respiratory physiology in some of these cases. We're doing it safely, but we're stressing it. Yep. And so I just thought that was a good example of... Um, of a rare, you know, medical diagnosis yeah. that um, was that that we were able to arrive at pretty quickly by, you know, through teamwork, communicating. Yeah, so communicating, of course, always key. Certainly, as you point out, in these surgeries where we're we're both very very focused on the same area, right. got to have good communication. Um, all right, great. Now, uh, the last thing I want to ask you about is we have a system here, and I'm sure other hospitals have a similar system of emergency airway response. We call it the DART. Uh, team, which stands for, um, actually, I don't know. What does it stand for? Do you know? Difficult Airway Response Team. Difficult Airway Response Team. That's right. I couldn't think of the D. Um, So the Difficult Airway Response Team. um, And when one calls a DART, you get uh, both otolaryngology, anesthesia, trauma surgery. Um, So we, of course, in anesthesia, uh, think of our role as to be to to try to intubate the patient. Um, 
What do you see your role there as, and what do you recommend in terms of kind of the teamwork that maximizes the benefit and the and the um, success of a dart call? Yeah, and I'll I'll just Jed, I'll back up a little bit in terms of this was established, I think, now about twelve years ago at our hospital due to um, a, a number of really airways that were not optimally managed, and in uh, um, root cause analyses was felt that the experts in the airway, right, uh, anesthesia, otolaryngology, trauma surgery, and when they're in the emergency room, the emergency room yep. attendings weren't, and, and certainly the highest level of each of these um, teams, weren't weren't arriving yeah. uh, at, at the patient's bedside quick enough. So the, the DART sort of um, uh, develops you know, an, an airway response team the same way you might have uh, a code team right. going where the heart's, the heart's not working. You know, since now, I think there's like six or seven teams, right? We have the, the brain attack team yep. and there's... Heart there's, attack team. Yeah. Right. All sorts of teams. But now to answer your question in terms of the goal is to get the airway experts there. Yep. Um, and I think fundamentally it's really a- anesthesia is, is, as you said, the airway expert, Right. The, the majority of them, especially now, if you think about the what your capabilities are with a video laryngoscope, your you know anesthesia is able to intubate the large majority of of cases, and also probably better than any, or certainly better than any other service, understands the difficult airway algorithm, right? The concept of let's get uh, LMA in, yeah. right? A laryngeal mask airway. That's part of the difficult airway algorithm. Right. I don't know that. You know, I think I hope most otolaryngologists are thinking about that and trauma surgeons, but probably not 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 all people are. Yeah. Um, and so that's the goal. Um, you know, uh, trauma surgery, which is in-house at a faculty level, uh, is there because they um, are proficient in performing a emergency surgical airway. Yep. Should it come to that? And then otolaryngology was um, included because they were being called, you know, before this team was developed, they were being called for some of these difficult airways. It was before there were video laryngoscopes mm-hmm. um, because of our technique with tubes laryngoscopy, yeah. which is different than your blade laryngoscopy, a Miller or Mac blade, right. uh, which is helpful if there's edema in the airway or bleeding in the airway, yep. which is probably uh, re- responsible for a, a, a significant percentage of these difficult airways. Right. So, And this is like a Hollinger? A Hollinger, right. Hollinger, Hollinger okay. um, laryngoscope, um, which is really our sort of go-to airway uh, laryngoscope. Yep. And that's a tube meaning that you actually are looking down through instead of under like we do. You're yeah. looking through a tube yeah. that it makes up the scope. Well, it's interesting to talk to you about because I – so it's interesting you look under the Mac or Miller blade. That's right. how you yes. – I, I think of it as really you have this beautiful horizon view, right? If you can get the tongue out of the way, you're seeing everything. Yeah. And it's this beautiful view. And we instead have this really tiny view. The Hollinger scope is actually monocular. You, you, can't, you can't get binocular view through it. Okay. And so you have these small little images that of through the tube laryngoscope. Very helpful if there's bleeding, yep. but not so helpful in terms of if there's difficult anatomy or to know exactly where, where you are. And yep. so you almost have to rely on your, your knowledge of the anatomy and how to get to the larynx. The other benefit of the Hollinger is the anterior aspect of the scope is, is uh, flanged up. Mm-hmm. You know, we oftentimes talk about an airway being anterior or yeah. larynx being anterior. And this was designed with that goal of, of getting there in the design of the scope. Yeah. So a lot of times if you can just place it, you're, it's going to uh, guide you where yeah. you need to be. Once you have that, that Hollinger laryngoscope, if you have it at your, uh, at, at your institution, um, you most breathing tubes don't fit through it. So you've now exposed the larynx, but you're going to now have to figure out how you get a definitive airway there. Yeah. We will oftentimes use a bougie, yeah. right? Or, um, and that bougie is placed through the, the Hollinger laryngoscope. The laryngoscope is then removed. So there's this 20 second period where everybody's wondering, do we really have an airway? Right. And then the uh, endotracheal tube is advanced over the um, bougie. Yeah. Okay, so that's a nice technique. So, you know, I think from my experience, and, and I think you'd probably agree, that the nice thing about these DART team calls is that you get the experts there, and then, you know, sometimes you don't have any time, but often you do, and you can kind of come up with a plan. If the issue is, 
and often it is. We don't know for sure, but it might be a really difficult airway, or there's a history of it, but we, you know, we don't know what it's going to be like this time. Then often it's the anesthesiologist will will take a look, and if they can get it in, then great. But if not, then you've got the backup right there, which might be, and it depends on the patient, you taking a look with the Hollinger, and if that doesn't work, the trauma surgeon doing the crike. Right, right. And right. so, you, but you've got all of that ready to go. And what's what's more, you know, I. I um uh, I, I think having multiple minds, as long as they're communicating well, right? And we, we talk about this a lot yes. with our with our, our respective residents. As long as they're communicating well, they are uh, they're enhancing than what what one mind right is 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 going to do. So I, I think you 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 nail it on the head in terms of the benefits of of such a team, especially when they're working in concert. Right. And and the other thing I would say is that there's often I think some reluctance, especially in young providers, whether that's a resident or a new junior attending to call a dart because they it almost in some ways it like feels like an admission of, of not being confident in your own skills especially on the anesthesia side right we're supposed to be able to do the intubation so to call a dart is almost like admitting failure um, but I would say I got over that really quickly and uh, it is so I would say if you're in doubt it's much better to call the dart team and not need it than to realize after you've tried and failed the intubation that now you need to call it and wait five minutes while you're desperately trying to oxygenate a patient who you may not be able to oxygenate. So if you're unsure and you have a system like this, take advantage, call it. I've never had a trauma surgeon or an otolaryngologist show up and say, well, Paul, what are you doing? Why'd you call me? Right? People are happy to be there and lend their expertise or just be on, on standby in case it doesn't go well. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And it's, it's funny hearing you say that. It's taken me a number of times to, to also – put that in my algorithm, right? Like I might, it might be one of my patients and I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm the person, I'm the difficult airway expert in otolaryngology. I'm here. But now the first thing I do is say, let's call a dart. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's helpful. Very helpful. No, no question about it. Um, and the last thing I want to say is that you and I, um, kind of collaborated on something that's been really interesting and successful, which is a, a, an elective where we've had our, our residents, um, go to your clinic and get to do some um, kind of high volume practice in uh, awake laryngoscopy, something that, that you guys do all the time. And what we found is that our residents find this really useful to help them learn the anatomy and the approach to awake intubation, something that just happens less and less because, as you mentioned, with video laryngoscopy, it's just less common that we have to do an awake intubation. And so I would suggest for anyone out there uh, thinking about this kind of thing, Get your, uh, your ENT and your anesthesia folks together and, and think about doing this. We found it really successful and a real benefit, and I think both um, the uh, otolaryngologists and the anesthesiologists have found this to be a neat, fun collaboration. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that completely. Great. Well, Zandy, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, for being a great colleague. Thanks for having me, Jen. All right. That was fantastic. Thank you, Zandy. I hope everyone found that as useful as I did. Go to the website, ACRAC.com. Let us know what you thought. If you are often in these surgeries or you have questions that weren't answered, let us know. If you have thoughts on different ways to do this, different ways to do a crike, let us know so we can all learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show, even if you've already done it. If it's been a little while, you can go back and do it again. It does count again. And if you're interested in supporting the making of the show please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. If you prefer to make a pledge when and where you want, you can go to paypal.me slash ACRAC. That's paypal.me slash A-C-C-R-A-C. And you can make a donation in any amount at any time that you'd like. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much to all of you who are already patrons or already have made donations. We really appreciate it. All right. That's it for today for the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Zandi Hillel. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.